What's up, everybody? Before we get the podcast started, I just wanted to remind you that we have merch for sale, official podcast merch. You can go to the link in the description of this very podcast and go to our Teespring account and get a shirt, two coffee mugs, and a COVID-19 custom mask with our logo on it, because why not milk this pandemic for all it's worth financially? So uh, again, the description to our merch is in the description of this podcast. On to the show. What's up, everybody, and welcome to Spooky Number 204 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. And Mike, guess what? My ass is haunted! Isn't it always haunted? It's even more haunted now! The ghost of past shits. Uh, anyway, how you doing, Mike? How's it going, man? How's I'm life doing, treating you? I'm doing good. Um, feeling better physically, so that's definitely a plus. Um, things at work are all right, but I'm actually. It, it's funny. You go back a year in this podcast, but I love my job. Da 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 da. And now you know. I know what people feel like when they're like, yeah, "All right, yeah, go to work." You know. Uh huh. It's just a, uh, it's just another job right now. The novelty uh, wears off. <laughs> well, really, it wore off because of you know changes in management and uh, everything. That's yeah, that'll that'll definitely do it. If they put in like, if they replace someone that you like with someone who's not so great. Well, I mean, it was just really. Uh, I'm really soured on things because of how things went down with 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 my manager Sarah and you know, just. Treated her like shit, and then she eventually she just said, "All right, fine, I don't need to deal with this shit." So, and then we're and then we're left with you know, uh, just a clusterfuck. It's uh. <laughs> my gigs have been uh, rather clustery as well in the fuckness department. Oh yeah, I heard you talk about some drama. So I'm like, what what oh. what is this drama you speak? Okay, of? so that so the we're. Does it tie into the clusterfuck with your gigs? It, it, is, it, is that what it? No, it doesn't. So basically, the the, the thing about my gigs, in short, is um, I I feel like now that everything's like you know our governor uh, removed the capacity restrictions and um, all the stringent policies that the bars had to have in place as far as like. You have to have like zones that that people can stand that six feet apart. And you can only have 25% capacity. They lifted all that. And when they did, everything has pretty much gone back to normal. Probably much to uh, Morgan's chagrin in Canada. A little shout out to Morgan because she works in the medical field. But um, yeah, everyone is just literally um, 
acting like it's uh, 2019 at the bars now. But good lord, all of their fucking alcohol tolerances have like must have gone on hibernation too, along with them being quarantined. Because Jesus Christ, these people are getting drunker now than I've ever seen them get. My gigs are fucking ridiculous. Like it's just the like the amount of drunks, man. Like that. So it's just a madhouse. Yeah, pretty much. So you're up there and you're just like they're tearing me apart. They're tearing me apart. Uh, no, more yeah. more like, uh, give me some fucking earplugs and put some goddamn <laughs> um, uh, uh, event garter garter rails around my goddamn DJ yeah. booth. And like, I'm just imagining you DJing in like a fucking one of those shark cages or some shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I wish they would do something like that, or like the, the chicken wire around me and shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, barbed like, wire. You got like barbed wire, barbed wire fence around your DJ booth. And it's electrified. My Wednesday gig is fucking slammed every time. And you really, like, uh, being a DJ or in, in any any field where you have to serve the public in any way, in, in a busy kind of manner, you really learn how fucking selfish every single individual person well, yeah, is. Yeah. Um, you get people that put in their song and they're supposed to just go away and wait until they're called. And I will call you, and you come sing your song. It should be so simple on paper, but of course, it it's not because what do they do? They come up every five minutes. Hey, when am I singing next? How many more singers until me? And you know, they just get more obnoxious and entitled. The drunker they get, pretty so. pretty much. And then on top of that, the more they want to sing because you know mm. alcohol lowers your inhibition. So now people who Originally, were too nervous to even sing one yeah. song. Now they want ten songs, and they want to yeah. sing them all now. But it's not just the one person. And then they sing them all badly. Well, yeah. Too. I mean, that's a so that's that. that's a given. I mean, that's that's you know. But 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 literally, there's like <laughs> there's like thirty more people just like that one selfish person I just described. So yeah. I'm, I'm getting this on all. I'm getting fucked in all holes right now with these gigs. Like as soon as I consult with one person about where they are on the uh, where they are on the list, how long it's going to be until they sing. Now I literally have two other people waiting to the right of me who I can tell have this eager look on their face and I know exactly what question they're going to ask. Hey, when am I singing next? When's my song uh-huh. coming up? And the thing is, is like, if you do anything besides give them what they want, you're, you are automatically the biggest fucking asshole in their book. Because sometimes yeah. I'll tell people, I, I go, dude, there's literally no way I can figure out when you're going to sing, man. I got a lot of singers. I'm sorry. And they just look at you like, wow, what a fucking asshole you are. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, what, bro, I don't even it's like I don't have time to sit down and break down the politics of how this works to you. What? You don't have a list? You don't have like a list of with everybody's name and like an already predetermined <clears throat> order for everybody? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they think that's so, so easy, but how I run my gigs is like, say we have five people that come in and sign up for songs and each mm. one of those five people get to sing a song and then a sixth person comes in who hasn't gotten to sing a song yet. Instead of me going back and starting the rotation over at the original five, and then the sixth person just has to wait their turn, I'll just go to the the sixth person instead before I start the rotation over again. That way, the most amount of new people can sing as possible, rather than the people who've been there the longest get to sing the most. Because I just feel like that's more fair. 
Uh, because I mean, if you walk into a, a room, a karaoke room, and you got like twenty singers, and it's like you get you get someone new signs up. I don't think it's fair that that new singer should have to wait through all twenty singers before they yeah. finally get to sing. I feel like the new. The, I don't think so either. Yeah, the, I mean, the it also person, adds more variety to your show. Yeah, so you don't have the same person singing. You know, or the same group of people singing over and over and over again. So yeah, so uh, to me, the new person takes precedent. A lot of places don't do it like that. A lot of places has have their good old boy networks where they have their regulars and they literally just cater to their regulars. I don't cater to my regular. I mean, I do in the sense of I'm more conversational with them and all that, but I'm not going to give them preferential treatment because that's just not what I'm about. I, I want. I mean, if you had like a slow night and like all you have is your regulars, then yeah, sure. But oh like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, that's it's, not the case. It's here, supply so. and demand. You know, if 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 I have more demand than I do supply, then people are just gonna have to be patient. But if I have more supply, people then I don't want to be patient. They're gonna act like rabid zombies. They're gonna act from, like petulant little no, they're petulant little children, and they're gonna pout and they're gonna. Uh, sometimes they even uh, throw the whole favoritism card at me or the whole, oh, you skipped uh-huh. me, you know, and they try to make it seem like like there's some kind of bias behind it. Like I, I skipped them specifically for some reason. And it's like, so is this is this this isn't necessarily your nightmare as a DJ, but it, it is something that um, is troubling. Like it's your nightmare would be like them, you know, destroying your equipment or something yeah i mean that, that that's that would that's like the ultimate that's the you. ultimate nightmare situation because you know that they're not gonna fucking pay for it they're not gonna they might that would be they, your, your nightmares uh, induced by freddy krueger would just be you know freddy just fucking with your equipment and then you'd just be like stop <laughs> yeah he just like slices my laptop in half and it's like cool dude you plan on paying for that sure i'll pay i'll pay for it and then he just never pays for it um yeah, no, the thing that I'm describing about the, the singers and the rotation, that's just a, a huge annoyance to me when you have a busy yeah. room, and that's what my Wednesday nights are like. And uh, It just seems like, you know, hey, it's fitting for the time of year. They want to make uh, your uh, life a little bit of a, a living hell. Not, not I think like you've been, watching, I think you've been watching too many horror movies, Mike. The, the horror references oh, yeah, are just off yeah. the charts tonight. <laughs> but no, I well, mean, you know, you know me. Yeah, I, I'm a huge horror guy anyway. So I think know, it has, I think just people in general with the lockdown and everything kind of now that everything's like kind of lifting in Florida, like everyone, everyone wants to like return to life as yep. usual. But they just it's like they overboard. For, yeah, they forgot how to act. And now they're over. They're being too much. Uh, I honestly saw that coming. I, yeah. I I even thought about that. That once things open up again, even your regular clientele, uh, including you know new people, are just gonna. It's just gonna be a lot of overkill initially. Um, yeah, they they are gonna take things a little bit farther than they might have previously. It's like, it's kind of like what happens when somebody uh, decides to relapse. You know, after, you know, they've uh, been, you know, sober for a while, sometimes they they can uh, overkill, you know, they can overdose. Yeah, that's know? usually what because they do as like, well when they... Oh get, my God, you know, I gotta take all the drugs Yeah, now, yeah. Or drink all the alcohol. That's how a lot of them OD is they, they're sober yeah. and then they, they have a relapse and they do way too much and they OD, but 
Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a symptom of the times, you know, like everyone is, everyone, whether they want to admit it or not, is slightly psychologically fucked up yeah. from this. It, it, it has taken a toll on people because we've never had to deal with anything like this. So uh, a lot of emotions run high easier. People get testy easier. Some people have uh -huh. lost jobs. Some people might have even lost a, someone that they loved to COVID or whatever. And, you know, a lot of people are just trying to... People have lost friends. Yeah, they're just trying... Not try just because of COVID, but because of all the other stuff that's happened on top of right. it. Right. So it's like, yeah. like for instance, my Monday gig, uh, there was a guy there and he was singing karaoke and um, he was loosely affiliated with this biker gang that I've brought up on the podcast before. Mm -hmm. And um, that night he got fucking gunned down drive by shooting in front of some uh, lady's house. Damn. And he was just at my gig. He's singing that night. And then after the gig, he, he got gunned. You know, I mean, this should never Do those kind of things tend to taint your, your uh, memories of like your, the entire night. Like, Whenever you think back at that night, you just think about, oh, that guy, he was shot. I later. mean, you know, for that gig, it will. I didn't know the guy. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's sad, you know, and I honestly, that shit never happens out here in Riverside. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is so rare that someone just gets shot, like gunned down like that. It's just really like, what the fuck, you know? So it's like, yeah, I, yep. I, I think, I think right now everyone's just kind of crazy. And, you know, I think being forced to socially distance and not, you know, be able to see people and your routine gets disrupted for six to seven months. I mean, you know, I think it's, it's perfectly natural for, I mean, not, it's not natural to shoot someone, but I think, no, I think it's natural to want to go and kind of overcompensate for all the fun that you've missed out on or all the Friday yeah. nights with friends that you haven't been able to do for the last, however many you know, regardless of like all the people yelling in year that you're killing people's grandmas or whatever, it's just kind of a visceral reaction that people have. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, they, it's like, well, they said it's okay for me to go out. I'm losing my mind. Fuck it, I'm going out. And you just kind of throw every, everything caution to the wind at that point because um, your odds are, you know, in your favor with like, even if you do get COVID and you're younger, you know, you're probably not going to die from it. So I think a lot of the, young people going out to bars now are like just kind of they just have that in mind like oh well it's just a fuck it attitude yeah pretty much I, I think at this point it is kind of a fuck it attitude and, and i'm having to sit here as the master of uh ceremonies the the uh <laughs> the hoster of the fun i'm having to deal with the brunt of these people and their um reacclimation into society after being locked inside their houses and 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 me as well like I haven't, you know, been a carry. I haven't been doing karaoke this whole time, so I have to get into the swing of hearing loud music right by my ears and people being mm -hmm. rude and like, man, this my Wednesday gig is like the busiest gig I've ever had, and uh, uh -huh. it's fucking crazy. Uh, I mean, I had I literally had people at the end of the gig. I had them Venmoing me and cash apping me like ten, twenty dollars to bump them up in the rotation so they could sing fa like quicker. Did you take it? Hell yeah, I did. <laughs> that's that's my unofficial rule. If you if you're willing to give me, you're gonna bribe me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If you're willing to pay me like ten dollars or more, you will go next. I, well, hey, I will instantly hey, skip you. Uh, I I I take requests and I put them 
uh, you know, at the top of the list if somebody pays me. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole... Otherwise, I'm not going to take all of these... Because I get a lot of comments from, hey, review this, could you do this, and can you do this one next? And it's like, you know, I they've, they've done it so often that I've just... I just... Uh, Every now and then I might pick one because it's somebody that I that I know and I'll you know or something I'm curious about. But like if if you don't pay me, call me greedy all you want, but like I have other plans, <laughs> I have other things that I'm doing, and if you're not gonna like pay me to do a specific request, then you know, I can't necessarily I'm not gonna make a guarantee about well, that. Well again, it goes back to supply and demand. If there's if there's so much demand and and so little supply, then you're gonna have to do something special to stand out from the crowd for me to mm-hmm. give you the service that you want because there's a million other people out here who want the same thing you're wanting. What makes you so special? So that's when the money comes in. I mean think of uh like uh the fast pass tickets at Disney. Yep. There's all this uh, demand to ride the rides, but so little supply because they only have so many. But I think <laughs> they only have so many I think rides. At Disney right now, and at any theme park at the moment, I don't think you need the fast pass. <laughs> well, you know, the point being is that like you pay for premium treatments. Well, yeah. You know. Yeah, I know, but like, it's not going to be worth the money right now. Well, because I, I think well, you forget, know, there's no. You know there. the example I was trying to make, Mike. I know the example. Why I'm you got a fucking just... shit on my fucking example? <laughs> God, I'm just pointing out like how crazy things are. You know how like in your instance, the kind of premium treatment that could still work, that could still be viable, that could still be something that you know uh, makes sense. But like with fast pass and stuff like that right now, and all these season tickets, you know, or or seasonal annual passes that people have for these theme parks and or even sporting events. It doesn't make as much sense now to, you know, spend all that extra cash for premium treatment when, you know, there's really not uh, the, the same demand or competition. Well, that's why AMC is renting out an entire theater for 99 bucks. <laughs> yep. But even that's not a good deal, because like I heard, like you have to have a minimum of like three people or something. That's not that. And bad. I'm like, well, I mean, three people for a hundred dollars. Like, think about it. Like the ticket price is normally around what ten, twelve. Do you get to uh, pick the movie that you see, or is it, or is uh, it from a pre-selected group? I don't know. It's probably from a pre-selected group of things. Because that's you're not going to be able to. Yeah, you're not going to be able to pick like some random you know, classic film to, there's no way. So that's not going to happen. Well, that's stupid. So Why am I paying? Yeah. yeah, I didn't realize that. I thought you could pick the movie. That's stupid. Like, Well, think about it. Think about it. It's, it's, it's rights. Like, you know, the AMC is struggling right now. They're not going to be able to afford to, you know, get rights for you to stream or play, you know, some, you know, film that isn't fairly new that they don't already have on their schedule. I didn't think about that. I figured it was just like a building and, and it, you know, like they're allowed to play. It could be, but I, that's the first I've heard of that. Well, I mean, shit, if you go during a matinee, you could get an empty theater with the movie that you choose to see without paying $99. Yeah. I don't know how many times I've gone to see a movie during the day, and I was me and the person yeah. I went with were the only ones in there. Well, also a lot. The thing is, the price is okay. All right, you know the theatrical experience, blah de blah de blah. But 
it's way cheaper to just have a movie night with your friend. God, I've somebody's house. I've fooled around so many times in a movie theater. I miss I miss doing that. <laughs> I just miss being able to see, you know, movies in the theater, you know, to have that experience, especially when it comes to, you know, the unique experiences of seeing, you know, classic films at 35 millimeter, you know, at the Hollywood, you know, with other film fans. That's what I miss, you know, the most, to be honest. Speaking of uh, drama, uh, that ties into uh, our focus for uh, this week's podcast. This is a case I've been wanting to cover for a long time. I thought since it's the Eve, or uh, at least it's coming close to uh, All Hallows Eve and Halloween, um, it would be the perfect time to discuss this case. And that case is one of the most infamous paranormal cases out there, one that ins- that uh, spawned a best-selling novel and countless of uh, publications and films and sequels and so on and so forth, and that is the case of the Amityville Horror. Was it a haunting or was it a hoax? Um, so I have a question. Gonna- I have a question for you, Mike. Mm-hmm. So as much as I'm into true crime and, and the, you know, the historical uh, yeah. stuff, I gotta admit, I don't really know much about the Amityville thing. So my question is, is the Amityville uh, homicides more famous, or is the Amityville supernatural stuff that happened oh, after it, more it, famous? I I would say in the mainstream, it's the it's the haunting. The so, homicides are not as famous as the the haunting so, or the theories that it you know that have been. Uh, talked about and discussed in various different media about how it's a hoax or or otherwise that that is definitely the, the thing that is uh stood out more and and i could see why some people are like well that's just messed up because more people should be you know focused in on the real murders and you know i i i understand i totally get it i think uh, and i agree because the real murders are are interesting in their own right and uh that there's a lot of questions, a lot of things you can discuss when it comes to the Amityville murders and the DeFeo case. But I think for a lot of people, it's just the sensationalism and just the, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, the Lutzes just supposedly got up and left everything that they ever owned and everything that they ever belonged that ever, I mean, ever that ever belonged to them. If I could even speak properly, um, one night and just packed up and left and their reasoning is because it was some night of supernatural horror so i think for a lot of people that's like whoa um that despite how uh plausible or not that may be uh i think that does uh lead a lot of people to be like okay you know that's that's pretty crazy and i think a lot of people are just attracted to a lot of you know craziness uh Back then and even now, so the only thing, the only recollection I remember I have regarding the Amityville stuff is that some guy like was compelled to kill his family with a chainsaw and stack their body parts in the backyard or something. Is that is that right? No, no. Is any of that right? I don't think that's right. Uh, Maybe DeFeo was compelled at one point to do that. I don't. I don't. I'm not 100% uh, for sure on that. I just remember... I'm not an expert on the DeFeo case by any means. 
I just remember the Eminem song. Mentally ill from Emmettyville. Accidentally kill your family still. Thinking he won't, goddammit he will. He's mentally ill from Emmettyville. So I'm <laughs> taking everything I know from an Eminem song. No, I think there was a movie in the too late... Or, what, the remake? I think so. The remake from 2005? Perhaps. With Ryan Reynolds? I saw I saw okay. one of them. Uh, I feel like it was... I think that might have been it, the remake from 2005. Was that exploring the paranormal side or the murder side it's explaining uh it, it tries to tie in the murders with the paranormal oh okay as if the guy was possessed by you know uh, uh spirits or whatever to do what he did what i never understand about like hauntings is like why do they predominantly like how how do spirits get trapped in a building you know a building is just like wood i don't and I don't think that it's the house that's haunted. It's the people. And the energy that they bring. The energy that they bring. I think that's probably true because every... That's why you have cases where people are like, oh, I lived in this house for years and nothing ever happened. Right, and I mean, that's always like, there's so, every case on Unsolved Mysteries, like the family that moves in after the fact, they never report anything strange. And I actually have like a little anecdote about my experience with something like that. Um, so uh -huh. my friend, well, I don't know if we're friends anymore since speaking of Hollywooding and big timing, uh, he, hasn't, <laughs> he hasn't talked to me since his band has gotten big. My friend Leo from that band Street Sex or whatever, he lived in this uh -huh. shit ass apartment um, when he was in Jacksonville before he moved to Texas and became a rock star. Um, and I would go and visit him and... He was showing me around his small little apartment, and then he sh he brought me to the his his bedroom, and he just stood in the doorway, and he goes, uh, "Yeah, so just like walk in there, you know." And I was like, "Oh, okay." And he's like, "So what do you think about the room?" And I was like, "I don't know. It's all right, I guess." And he's like, "You don't feel anything?" And I was like, "Nope." And he's like, "Oh, well." Uh, before I rented this apartment, somebody hung themselves in that room and they their body wasn't found until like three days later when their body was like Damn. decomposing and shit. And he's like, I didn't find that out until after I um, started sleeping in that room and I was, I'd have these horrific nightmares and I had, I'd wake up from in cold sweats. So now I sleep on the couch and my landlord finally told me the story with that room. And he said, when I brought my neighbor into the room, as soon as he stepped into the room, he stepped back out and he said, no, I don't want to go in that room. And then my ass is just sitting over here, like standing in the middle of the room. And I'm like, yeah, it's a cool room. I have no uh, no problem with it whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think I'm attuned to the supernatural, man. I really don't. Yeah. Because I didn't feel yeah. any weird vibe. I mean, for all I know, the I think an old lady lived in this house that I'm currently living in right now because um, when I first moved in, I found all these long, white, like, human hairs all in the carpet mm -hmm. here and there when I'd vacuum. So it was probably some old lady. For all I know, she could have died in this house. Nothing weird has ever happened in here. I, You know? Anytime I get a weird feeling, I know there's... I know it's it's something going on with my brain chemistry yeah. being off like yeah. maybe i'm hungover or my anxiety is high well, yeah i think th i think that's that's the case with uh, a good amount of people's experience right and it's, there are a lot of exaggerations and this case is no different instead of chalking it up to i'm having like a chemical imbalance that's making me 
feel like I'm being watched, feel paranoid. Mm -hmm. They chalk it up to, oh, no, there is actually something out there watching me. There is actually something out there, uh, an evil spirit that is making me feel this way. And it's just, eh, you know, I I know it's bullshit because, you know, oh, mysteriously, all these... These times that I'm feeling this way happen to coincide with the day after I drank a lot the night before. You yeah. Know? So it's like, yeah, yeah, I know yeah. it's a chemical imbalance. I did, but there are some people where where I think it's a little bit deeper than that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's when you look problem. into something like sleep paralysis or, you know, um, or I think there can be instances of psychological things where people, as the years have gone by, because of uh, abuse that they've experienced, they have created the uh, paranormal event as a way of coping, you know, with things and, you know, trying to, you know, bury the truth and, you know, being like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so wasn't abusive to me. A ghost was, you know, right. That kind of thing. Um, But anyway, uh, here's a little bit of a refresher course on the DeFeo murders. So on November 13th in 1974, six members of the DeFeo family, Father Ronald, Mother Louise, two daughters and two sons, were shot to death in their beds. They were in their home at 112 Ocean Avenue. A third son, 23-year-old Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., initially told police he'd innocently discovered the bodies in the locked house around 6 p.m. later that day. As Butch DeFeo told the story that day, When he saw the bodies, he fled to the house to a bar down the street, arriving there in a state of hysteria, as one man lingering at the bar told reporters. He took the men back to the house and the police were called, who doubted Butch's claims and innocence almost immediately. Within two days of finding the bodies, uh, he would be on the hook for six second-degree murder charges. The police had come to believe that he committed the crimes because he wanted insurance money, a sum of about $200,000. Which is a good amount of money today, adjusting for inflation. I wonder how he got second degree if he had a premeditative, premeditated motive. I mean, first degree is premeditation, and if you're if you know you're going to get insurance money by killing these people, that's that's a premeditated motive to. Well, this is what the police believe he did these murders for. Uh, they could. So DeFeo's attorney was a bald. Pa- Pated, uh, I don't know what is his bald pated, you know, it was a bald, laconic man named William Weber. From the time of his arraignment, Weber insisted that DeFeo was insane. Uh, actually, apparently that this is from some website called Topic. Uh, depending on which source you you uh, call from or look at, uh, he didn't insist that initially. Uh, he then tried to change uh, the defense and tried to make things uh into he tried to shift things into the insanity realm because of the success of the Amityville horror you know and the novel and the film and everything and he wanted to write his own book to compete with the Amityville horror novel by Jay Anson and he wanted to get DeFeo to change his initial you know he wanted to change his initial uh thought process and go for insanity because that would tie into uh the the Amityville horror. You could argue that oh he was uh, possessed by blah 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 you know and make a ton of money. So uh, he insisted that DeFeo was insane. They blamed the dead Ronald DeFeo Sr. for his son's dysfunction, arguing that he had been an abusive, bullying man 
By the time the case came to trial in October of 1975, just months before the Lutzes would buy the Ocean Avenue house and move in, DeFeo's lawyers had hired a psychiatrist who said their client had been in a state of paranoid psychosis as he moved through the house and shot each of his relatives one by one. Uh, just the thought of that is really genuinely scary. You know, a paranoid psychosis to the point where you're just going around room to room and just blasting your family. I'm sure that. Chris Watt can relate to that. So, uh, the there was another psychiatrist who was hired by the prosecution. Uh, the psychiatrist agreed that DeFeo was mentally ill, but insisted that he still knew what he was doing was wrong and therefore didn't fit the legal definition of insane. The jury sided with the prosecution, and DeFeo received six concurrent life sentences for the deaths of his siblings. Um, there's been some questions about this case in terms of, like, why did other people in the house not hear the gunshots? Well, why did they not, like, run away or try to escape? Like, what, you know... And I, I can understand those questions. You know, loud gunshot blasts, if you think that would wake you up, right? I mean, are you allowed to ask anything, any critical question like that nowadays with the whole... You're shaming the victim. I don't think you're allowed to ask, well, why didn't you do this? Why are you not believing, you know, I don't know. Well, I mean, the, the fact is they still died of horrible deaths. So, I mean, and, and there are instances uh, <clears throat> in murders like this where people, they don't wake up. You think they would. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of times where they don't. Some people are just in extremely heavy sleepers. Yep. So when a Newsday reporter at the trial asked Weber if he thought the verdict against his client was fair, he did not reaffirm his client's innocence or make the usual strident sort of statement one expects from a criminal defense attorney. Instead, he shook his head and said, I'm glad I wasn't a member of that jury. But Weber clearly still wanted to argue the case. He said to reporters during the trial that he was charging DeFeo only a modest fee and that I'm getting more out of this from the publicity. The tale of a haunting gave Weber a chance to put the case back into the spotlight. It was in fact Weber's office that the Lutz's uh, February 1976 press conference took place when they initially opened up to what occurred that night. Uh, although he did not present himself as their attorney, Weber told reporters that day, that now, having heard from the Lutz's uh, family and their full story, the story that they were not entirely sharing that day with reporters, he thought he could reopen the DeFeo case. Uh, the implication was clear. The tale of paranormal phenomena and the house suggested that DeFeo, in fact, had been out of his mind. He'd been driven out of it by the supernatural current that took place uh, in and uh, around and inside uh, the Amityville house. And of course, Weber said he could not tell them more just then, he still had to discuss it with his incarcerated client. He was looking at filing a motion, he said, although he never said what kind, kind, and none appears to have ever been filed. As of right now, Ronald DeFeo is still an inmate in a correctional facility in Fallsburg, New York. And DeFeo, he's changed his story over the years. Like, he's like a lot of, you know, convicted murderers. Oh, I didn't do it. It was my sister. Uh, or it was, you know, such and such. But he seems to be going more with uh, his sister did it, uh, more more than um, he was the one that, that killed his family. Which I think that's another coping mechanism Yeah, that uh, happens with killers. Denial. Where they're denial and like, oh, I didn't do it. 
you know, my sister did, or this guy, or the somebody, or this shadowy figure, you know, the real killers out there. I mean, even uh, O.J. Simpson did that shit. You know, I, I'm going to find the real killer. Yeah, you know, the the O.J. Simpson thing reminds me a lot of uh, An American Murder, The Nightmare Next Door, or whatever. Uh, O.J. Yeah. Simpson reminds me a lot of, of Chris Watts um, mm-hmm. in, that, in, in just how good of an actor he was well i mean he wasn't that great of an actor but you know just how he was able to be like you know i just want to find out who killed my family you know in, in all reality it's it was like yeah that was that was that was you man <laughs> there's no way it, it, it could have been anyone else apparently they were you know your typical normal couple at least normal for the 70s uh, George had a, lots of pin straight light brown hair and a full beard. Uh, Kathy had a blonde feathered haircut that framed a, su- a round sweet face. In the press conference, George did more of the talking. He took the tone of someone who had been forced reluctantly and after long consideration to come forward with his story. He said he didn't want to get into details, but yes, he said a very strong force had driven his family from the house. He wanted to correct some facts. No, his family had not seen human shapes and flying objects in their home. No, they had not heard wailing sounds or seen moving couches. But yes, they left the house after only owning it for a month with just three changes of clothes apiece. Only owning it for a month uh, because of our concern for our own personal safety as a family. And that was about all he was willing to share for the present time. The reporters tried to press Lutz for more details, but he would not be specific. As a Newsday writer reported with evident frustration, Lutz did say that he would not spend another night in the house if he was asked to do so by researchers, but he also said he is not planning to sell the house right now, the reporter wrote. A big part of that, apparently, is that the house was under uh, foreclosure, so when he and his family left, it was going to be foreclosed upon. But that little nugget of information uh, adds a different question because they'd only been in the house for a month. So how did they get so far behind in their payments that uh, it was going to be foreclosed in a month? Unless they just never made any payments to begin with. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, like, that's possible. mortgage is due every month, your mortgage. And if they were only in there a month and they just never made their first payment, then... But I don't think they foreclose upon like after just like one missed month of payments, yeah. right? Yeah, no. You, I mean, they give you like notices and all, I mean, they don't want the bank doesn't. It's a pain in the ass for them to, you know, go through all that. They just want the person to give them something, you know. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. That is weird. Yeah. And apparently, um, George um and it, you know, Kathy, they told their kids ahead of time, you know, before they went into the house, where they moved into the house, you know, oh, by the way, you know, people were murdered here. Like, how do you feel about that? So kind of like your your deal, like, oh, somebody died or could have died. You're like, oh, okay. It's a nice house. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> so for the most part, you know, everyone's like, ah, it's fine. I mean, I, I wouldn't knowingly buy a house if I knew for uh, like 100% fact that someone like died in it before me. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. What if, if it would, what if it was like, uh, just, they just died of old age or something or a heart attack. Yeah. I, st- I still, I would still be creeped out by that. 
and, mm. and I feel bad because my neighbor who lives across the street from me, she's like around my age, you know, and the guy who lived there before actually did die. Uh, I don't know if he died in the house, but I know he died of a heart attack. And uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't have the heart to tell her that, hey, <laughs> dude, the, or the house that you're living in now, someone died in that place. Oh my god! So uh, this leads to uh, the book "The Amityville Horror" by Jay Anson, which was an enormous bestseller. I mean, it was at the top of the list for like was it thirty something weeks or something. It was an insanely a successful book, but I think in large part that's due to, of course, the story, the connection, the it hooks you with the whole based on a true story, like oh my god, this really happened. So the book, purportedly based on a true story, uh, describes the house at uh, 112 Ocean Avenue as remaining empty for 13 months after the DeFeo murders. In December of 1975, George and Kathleen Lutz bought the house for what was considered to be a bargain price of $80,000. Uh, the five-bedroom house was in Dutch colonial style and had a distinctive gamble roof. And the house itself, admittedly, is pretty creepy. It's it, does have eyes for windows. Yeah. But then again, that was a pretty popular, I think, a design for houses around that time. So it wasn't like the only house that had those kind of windows. Um, it also had a swimming pool and a boathouse. As it was located on a canal. George and Kathy married in July of 1975. They each had their own homes where they wanted to start fresh with a new pop property uh, Kathy had three children from a previous marriage, Daniel, Christopher, and Melissa. They also owned a, a Malmute Labrador dog named Harry. During their first inspection of the house, a real estate broker told them about, about the DeFeo murders. They decided that, uh, it's not a problem. We're still going to move in. They moved in, in on uh, December 19th, 1975. Apparently, much of the DeFeo's family, uh, Furniture was still in the house because it was included for $400 as part of the deal. How do you feel about owning items that the people who were murdered? Uh, not good about that at all. Owned. I mean, my yeah. brother's friend, uh, his great uncle died and they, they pretty much like went to his house and like raided all of his shit because mm. he's dead. You know, he doesn't need it. And my brother brought a lot of he his his. His uncle was uh, like a medical person during like World War II over in Europe. And so he had all uh -huh. these really awesome like old German books and shit. And my brother knew that I would, you know, want that because I'm interested in like all things German. And yeah. um, even just him giving me that and it had the dude's like handwritten notes in the books. I just made me feel sad. It was like uh -huh. this was this this was stuff that this guy that I don't even know. This is like stuff that was important to him, and now I have it, and it just feels wrong. So no, I would not feel mm -hmm. good about that. I'm weird about that kind of that kind of stuff. So uh, especially if it would if if you know it led to a haunting like like the Tallman ghosts, you know the Tallman house. Like, what if someone received <laughs> my prized dildo if I died? Uh, I'm surprised they haven't. Oh, actually, they did. I think they did a movie called The Amityville Vibrator. Never mind. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The Amityville Vibrator. <laughs> so a friend of George Lutz learned about the history of the house and insisted on having it blessed. 
At the time, George was a non-practicing Methodist and no experience of what this would entail. Kathy was a non-practicing Catholic who explained the process, blah body blah George knew a priest named Father Ray who agreed to carry out the house blessing. Uh, in Anson's book, uh, real-life priest Father Ralph J. Picaro is referred to as Father Mancuso for privacy reasons. Father Mancuso was a lawyer, judge of the Catholic Church, and a psychotherapist. Uh, he arrived to perform the blessing uh, while George and Kathy were unpacking their belongings on the afternoon of December 18th, 1975. He went into the building to carry out the rites. When he flicked uh, the first holy water and began to pray, he heard a masculine voice demand that he get out. Uh, when leaving the house, Father Mancuso did not mention this incident to either George or Kathy. And uh, apparently this uh, priest, in a lawsuit that occurred later from William Weber, which I'll get into that, the details of that soon enough. Uh, William Weber, uh, it, he, and uh, during this particular lawsuit, he got this priest to come to the stand and under oath, he said like, oh, that didn't happen. But he did say that it it occurred in, when he was interviewed for the show In Search Of, because they did one on Amityville. That's the and, um, Nimoy show, right? Yes. And he showed up in, like, pre-unsolved, you know, early Unsolved mystery shadow form. You know, he was all, you know, blacked out and with, like, a voice over to hide his identity. Probably because he was, like... I'm probably get, I'm going to get paid for this, you know, and I don't want to be embarrassed by, you know, admitting that this actually did happen. Uh, but then, of course, when he was brought to court under oath, he was like, yep, yeah, it was a bunch of bullshit uh, made for a cool scene in the movie, you know, where the priest goes in and and, you know, the voice says, get out. You're like, oh. Uh, when leaving the house, Father Mancuso did not mention this incident uh, to either George or Kathy, uh, probably because they would have been like, what are you, high? Uh, on December 24th, 1975, Father Mancuso called called uh, Lutz and advised him to stay out of the second floor room where he'd heard this mysterious voice, the former bedroom of Mark and John Matthew DeFeo, uh, that Kathy planned to use as a sewing room, but the call was cut short by static. Following his, his visit to the house, Father Mancuso allegedly developed a high fever and blisters on his hands, similar to stigmata. At first, George and Kathy experienced nothing unusual in the house. Talking about their experiences subsequently, they reported it as if they were living each living in a different house. By mid-January of 1976, another attempt at the house blessing by George and Kathy, uh, they experienced what would turn out to be their final night in the house. The Lutzes declined to give a full account of the events that took place on this occasion, describing them as too frightening. But in the book, uh, there was a lot of stuff. There's greenish black slime coming up from, uh, the staircase towards them. There's this creepy uh, devil pig that they saw in the window at one point. There's all these flies like everywhere. Um, and on January 14th of 1976, George and Kathy Lutz with their three children and their dog, Harry, they left uh, 1112 Ocean Avenue, leaving all of their possessions behind. The next day, a mover arrived to remove the possessions and send to the Lutzes. He reported no paranormal phenomenon while inside the house. So the book was a huge smash. Uh, I think probably due to the success of other books like The Exorcist. And you could see some uh, similarities between The Exorcist and the Amityville Horror. 
Um, I've read the book. I read it years ago. I think it was, I, I read it for like a book report or something in either like, was it high school or something like that? And um, even while I was reading the book, I was like, yeah, this is based on a true story. My, my ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah, come on. Um, so after uh, the Lutzes fled their house in Amityville, it stood empty. Then a family called Cromartie. Uh, they moved into the house uh, in the spring of 1977. This is a quote from Jim Cromartie that he uh, told a reporter. We moved in on April 1st. Uh, we were out here like a week and then came this good housekeeping article. We started to get a lot of visitors because there was also a good housekeeping article that talked about the Lutzes uh, experiences in the house. We started to get a lot of visitors, a good housekeeping article by a man named Paul Hoffman, who'd repeatedly written about the case for the New York daily news was published in the April, 1977 issue under the title. Our dream house was haunted. The article would swiftly become the subject of a lawsuit by the Lutzes who claimed the article invaded their privacy. This lawsuit in which the Lutzes sued Hoffman, good housekeeping, the New York daily news and several other parties for invasion of privacy ultimately was not successful. The publications were thrown out by the case by judges and claims against Hoffman and the remaining defendants were eventually settled for undisclosed terms in 1979. Then five months later, Jay Anson published the book he'd written with a Lutz's input, The Amityville Horror, A Devil of a True Story, uh, a Los Angeles Times reviewer called it. The book swiftly hit the bestseller lists. It stayed there for actually 42 weeks. Uh, by 1981, the book had gone through 37 printings and sold over 6.5 million copies. The days of books selling that many copies, I don't think uh, those are around anymore. Hmm. I mean, paper like paperbacks and and hardcovers, yes. maybe not, but like like audio books and all That's that. That's what I mean. But I mean, in terms of like physical or i mean you could say the same thing about like cds or dvds as well Oh yeah for sure uh the film rights were sold to hollywood with the anson attached to write the screenplay but as the phenomenon grew there were two doubt key doubting voices throughout their ownership of the house which lasted a decade jim and barbara camardi repeatedly told the press they'd never seen anything unusual in the house uh they bought the place cheap because of all the bad publicity they bought the house for $55,000 where the Lutzes had bought it for only 80000 Instead of spirits or Cromartie's complaint, they were haunted by what could only be called paranormal tourists who knocked on the door at all hours of the day and night. Uh, these people sometimes called themselves witches, apparently. Sometimes they cursed out the Cromarties and told them that they would die. Sometimes they were drunk. And sometimes, as the family told Newsday in 1978, they were just odd. I think one of the funniest things was when we woke up at three o'clock and heard this guy with a bugle playing taps on the front lawn. I opened the window and applauded and said, kid, you've got a real good sense of humor, <laughs> said Jim Cromartie. The Cromarties would eventually sue the Lutz's Anson and the book publisher Prentice Hall for $1.1 million, uh, trying to get them to admit the subtitle of Anson's book, A True Story, wasn't quite what it was cracked up to be. The suit settled for an undisclosed six-figure sum in 1982. Uh, the subtitle still stands, but sometimes it seemed even Jay Anson thought true story might have been an exaggeration. Whenever he was asked by the press if he actually believed the story he had written, he usually gave some wry reply. To people in 1978, uh, I'm a professional writer. I don't believe and I don't disbelieve. I leave that to the reader. 
to the New York Times. He said the same year, I believe those people believe what they went through, all those things that they saw and they heard. And in 1980, uh, at the age of 58, he up and died of a heart attack. So he never got around to explaining why so much of what is claimed in his book. Police visits, Catholic priests with ghostly experiences, stormy weather turned out to be utter bunk, according to all concerned. But then a few of the participants here were ashamed of copying to embellishments. William Weber, for example, was quite prepared to say that it was all a lie. Granted that he also wanted to take credit for having to come up with a great idea in the first place. So Weber, who was uh, DeFeo's attorney, apparently his story is that he met with the Lutzes and uh, he met with them because he wanted to corroborate with them with a book that would uh, discuss the DeFeo case. And that's when they came up, they made up this whole idea that this was all made up, the haunting and so on and so forth. Everything was all uh, a hoax that uh, Weber made up the entire story with the Lutzes over a bottle of wine. Um, but he still tries to corroborate that something might have happened because he said that they did claim to have some sort of supernatural experience in the house. But he says that it was only with his help that they began to elaborate on the details of the story after looking at evidence of Ronald DeFeo's crime, which he provided them. The famed green slime, for example, that was blood. The flies, based on the flies from the crime scene. Uh, but as you can see, Weber was was in, in it for the money, too. See, the thing with this case, it's been clouded after so many years by, you know, the fact that there's a book that was really successful. There's this film franchise. There's William Weber uh, talking to any uh, uh, publication or any interview that he can't interviewer that he can to take credit for everything. Um, and a lot of times people point to William Weber's interviews as proof that it was all a hoax. And that it's just one of those things that's like other than his interviews and the fact that these other people who lived lived in the house haven't really experienced anything unusual. That's what a lot of people have, you know, as proof like that. It's 100 percent a hoax never happened in any capacity. And, you know, if you feel that way, that's fine. I think it's more of a mix of two things. Like, I think there was something that happened, but I think it was really over-exaggerated on the part of Lutz and Jay Anson. So when you have the Lutzes exaggerating things, and then you have this novel that's exaggerating things, I, I totally understand why a lot of people would just be like, oh, they're just bullshit artists. But they, they when they moved out of their house, they left everything behind. They didn't get these... Uh, they didn't get rich quick. They did not get rich quick at all. In fact, they when they moved out of their house, they were living off of food stamps for months. So they did not really have like a backup plan. They didn't have anything like that. And it, it just it just throws in other layers and other questions to this case in terms of like, oh, like why did they just drop everything and move out? It would make sense that it would be an instance of, oh my God, like it was it was something so horrible that they had to leave. But then you have the whole thing like, well, you know, the foreclosure. But it, it, where is that coming from? I hear that too, and I can't seem to find the the actual document or something that that 
corroborates that particular story. Because when you look at that, you're like, well, they'd only been in there for a month. Uh, I, you would think they'd get a notice at least. Right. Maybe in the 70s, they were just like, nope, get the fuck out. Maybe that's what the voice is like, get out. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah. So Weber, he uh, was involved with it, with the Lutzes, and they're trying to write this book. But there's a source that claims that the Lutzes found out that he was going to uh, share the profits of this book with uh, Ronald DeFeo. And uh, they were not having that. They didn't want that because the guy's a killer. They didn't want to give him any money. So they cut Weber out. And that is when Weber started to do this whole, everything was a hoax. Nothing ever happened. It was all my idea. So he tried to uh, write his own book, but uh, that never happened. Uh, DeFeo later corroborated Weber's account, too, saying he never wanted to claim insanity. Uh, that said, his credibility was suspect. His explanation for the crime was uh, suspect, too. He said his mother and sister had been involved in the killings. In an appearance before the parole board in 1999, DeFeo explained that he actually only killed one of his sisters, Dawn. He claimed that she had been responsible for the rest of the murders. I love my family very much. And the parole board did not believe him. So the only people inv involved with Amityville who insisted that it was real were the Lutzes themselves. And uh, they only agreed to cooperate with Anson. They gave him a few press interviews pegged to the book. But in those interviews, they were suddenly the same reluctant guarded couple they'd been in the original press conference. Um, the only thing George Lux was e eager to get across in an interview, the reporter says, uh, was that the family was happier now for the experience that they'd gone through. The experience he still seemed somewhat reluctant to articulate in detail. We now appreciate the, the good things more. Uh, we are closer together, you know, the typical sort of stuff. Um, and uh, also in these interviews, there's an, this is the same interview for the Los Angeles Times. Uh, Los Angeles Times. They demanded that the reporter not reveal precisely where they live, take photographs of the inside of their house, or take photographs of the children. So that raises some red flags, because you're like, okay, they're making all these demands. This is supposedly something that happened, but they're all like, you can't do this, you can't do that, and you can't do that. So we don't want, you know, people to you know, think that we're, you know, just bullshit artists. So, Kathy died in 2004, George in 2006, but over the years, George in particular would give a few more interviews, slowly opening up the frame. Still, he has this strange, agnomatic figure on the, you know, he was the Amityville guy. Like, he he, he was proudly admitting that he was the Amityville guy. Uh, he also claimed to admit that certain elements of the story, the green slime in particular, were embellished, and they weren't accurate, uh, which, of course... Uh, leads to a lot of a lot of people to be even more skeptical about things like oh he just admitted that you know this is made up so the, the whole thing was probably made up but his children have complicated that because at least two of them clearly believes that there was a haunting uh Danny Lutz and Christopher Quarantino uh the two older Lutz children they say uh they remember the events shadowy figures and being thrown up a staircase by malevolent spirits and that ties into the documentary My Amityville Horror that's the thing that Mike made me watch. <laughs> I, I tied him down and forced him to watch the documentary. Because I wanted to talk a bunch of shit about 
the second season of Unsolved Mysteries, but oh, we'll still do that in the season of in the that. spirit of Halloween. Uh, we're doing this. <laughs> what do you think of the documentary? Uh. Speaking of Unsolved Mysteries, it actually reminded me of an episode of the new Unsolved Mysteries because yeah. it was super drawn out with uh-huh. very little actual meat. It was yep. following around the son of the Lutzes and his experiences there. And basically it's like 90, almost 90 minutes of a middle-aged man who's very fucking defensive in a Boston accent, talking about how windows slammed down on his fingers and uh, cartoon pigs. I thought he was like, oh, it was skin on skin. Yeah, like it crushed right through the bone and um and and, and he's talking about like his hand like blew up to like comical proportions to like a child's like, baseball glove the size of a child's baseball and, glove and then and then and then it like returned to normal yeah instantly except for his <laughs> pinky or whatever and you know he's he's a, he's being a jackass like he'll someone yeah. will be he'll he'll say something like uh you know and and the priests uh, you know performed exorcisms on me and they're like, uh, exorcism? Like, what do you mean by exorcism? You know, like laying hands and speaking in tongues in holy water. What, 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 what are the questions you need to ask about exorcisms? It's like, well, <laughs> maybe they're trying to get you to clarify for the movie watching audience who may not know what the fuck that entails, dick. Like he did, he was just so, <laughs> so defensive the whole time. Yeah. And I love how the movie or the documentary ends. The the guy the producer's like, yes. would you be willing to take a, a, a lie detector test? He's like, he and he pauses. There's just like this pregnant pause, and he's like, you know, you know, a lot of people have asked me to do that. My ex wife asked me to do that. My friends asked me to do that. Um, you know, we're gonna have words after this documentary because you're gonna be pulling <laughs> shit like that, asking me questions like that. You know, uh, w- w- will I take a a a, t- a polygraph test? To confirm in my head that uh, what I already know to be true is true, yeah. But am I gonna do it so you, uh, so you uh, motherfuckers will believe my story? No, I'm not gonna do that or whatever. And it's just like, wow, yeah. dude, you yeah. were incredibly defensive for someone who, uh, you know, stands by their story so much. I don't necessarily think the defensiveness is 100% proof of. You know, he's he's uh, you know completely you know making this up on the fly. No, um, I think he's. But I do see it as it's another part of his uh, coping. You know, it's like a defense mechanism. I think he's you had know, he he, he's, he's, he's had it. literal like he's explaining in the documentary. He's known as the Amityville horror guy. Kid, kid, the Amityville. No, he says I don't want. You know, he. I don't think he says that. He says. I don't view myself first as, you know, the Amityville kid. That's not how he views you know, himself, other, uh, but that's how other people yeah, view him. Yeah, but but he but he also mentions how George is the guy who would go around, I'm the Amityville guy. Yeah, like, the, he wasn't really that kind of person. Point being is that he's had to deal with this his whole life from the public. Oh yeah. And so oh, exactly. So it could be argued that the the the, the defensiveness comes from a I am so sick of talking about this shit. You know, well, you could see that in other parts of the interview where it's like, oh man, I, I, why did you make me do this? You know, I don't want to fucking do this. You know, that kind of thing. But then, then too, it's kind of like, well, dude, 
if you signed up to do this documentary, I mean, obviously we're going to be asking you. I think, he, I th- yeah, I know. I, I think he knew that, but he didn't necessarily know how much, uh, you know, how a lot of things were going to go down until they started shooting. You know, a lot of people, they have, oh, yeah, I can do it. I can handle it. You know, da, 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 da. I need to talk about this. Because apparently he was the one that contacted the filmmaker. Oh, okay. So he knew ahead of, ahead of time in advance, but I don't think he knew, like, you know, how far they were going to try to go with things. Um, I don't think it's a great documentary by any means. No. But I think it's worth a watch just for, you know, how it, it has this unfiltered take on this man. I wish they like, you don't like I wish they used more arch- archival footage. That's one thing yeah, I was like, maybe they didn't have, you know, a lot of archival footage. Maybe they didn't have the rights to the archival footage. Like if you think about the Amityville thing, like there's probably just a ton of different places and people who have all different types of rights to things. And this is a very low budget kind of yeah. uh you know, film made by a fan of, of the Amityville, you know, case and, and, you know, the hauntings and everything surrounded by it. You know, with how technology has evolved these days, uh, it's getting harder and harder to tell low budget documentaries. Oh yeah. From big budget until you actually really start watching the content. And it's all about the content because like cinematic level, like level cameras are, the most affordable now that they've ever been. They were so cost prohibitive back in the day that you could really tell a low budget super eight level movie from mm. a 35 millimeter, you know, Panavision professionally shot thing. Nowadays, shit, it's getting harder and harder to tell. I mean, that's why like, like for instance, the new unsolved mysteries looks great. It looks beautiful. Like it shot, and this looks good. Yeah, it shot beautifully. But then it, it now with documentaries, it really boils down to the content. And then for me with documentaries, I always like little cutaways where there's like a graphic on the screen that's illustrating something. Um, like one thing I really liked about Super Size Me is how he would break off into these bits where he would just give you interesting facts about mm-hmm. how McNuggets are made and there was an animated illustration. Um, things like that are what really set documentaries apart uh, to me. Or just have just bring the fucking interesting content. Uh, like, for instance, in Capturing the Freedmans, where you find out that the father is, is this, like, pedophile and has been diddling children and diddled his own kids. And it's like, it's yeah. all building up and creating this great suspense to reveal this juicy bit of information at the end. But I think with that, with that particular case, you know, you could do that. With Amityville, the details are well known. It's a case that is infamous and, and will continue to be infamous for many, many years to come. So I, I don't really feel that that approach would have worked with this trying to be like, Oh, and building up and building up and then, Oh, then the hauntings. And then this is what happened. And then, you know, I, I think what they were trying to do, it was like, Hey, you know, this, 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 uh, man, you know, who was the kid all grown up, you know, who was in the house. Like now he's speaking up, you know, he's opening up, you know, for the first time, you know, that kind of thing. Um, what I did, uh, like I said, I, I appreciate the fact that it's unfiltered. Like, he's shown as a damaged, 
you know, really, uh, uh, not necessarily controlling, but, um, defensive is definitely the Oh, right let word. me just say, as a, touchy. As a, as a, very touchy, let me just, very touchy guy. As a, as a fucking super interesting side note, this guy is a fucking amazing guitar player. Like this, this go. guy. I thought you would appreciate that. Part like too. they, in court, they, they, they do little cutscenes with him, just like shredding on the guitar with like almost Eddie Van Halen like eruption era precision with the finger type tapping and the, the 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 dude's a sick ass guitar player and he's got some pretty dope looking guitars too. So I'm just sitting there thinking to myself like. I get. I guess, like, I guarantee you, when the film crew was there, he's like, "Yeah, let's go down my my cellar. I want to show you my guitars." And you know, he probably started playing for them, and they're like, "God damn, this guy's like really good. We need to work this in to the movie yeah. somehow." Because uh, he was a sick ass guitar player. I'm sitting there thinking, like, bro, you need to like start a band and stop worrying about this Amityville shit. Like, holy yeah. shit! But you can't blame him. I mean, that that had to be rough, uh, you know, uh, not only does he have, you know, rough uh, instances, you know, involving his stepfather and his family life, you know, he runs away at like, what is it, like 13 or 14. Um, I love how he's like, I lived in the desert. Like, like really? Like, what do you mean, Arizona? <laughs> it's not if you lived in the desert. Like, is that some kind of uh, slang that I don't get or I don't I'm not aware of? Because I doubt that you lived in the middle of the fucking desert for for uh, a year. He's like, it's really easy to be homeless in the desert. It's it's uh, you don't got to worry about the cold. And the lady's like, yeah, but it gets really cold at night. And he's like, yeah, well, kind of. <laughs> he's like, there's a lot of good food out there too. And I'm like, what fucking like iguanas or or tum- tumbleweeds? <laughs> like, what do you what, what what kind of food is there in the desert? Cacti? Yeah. I don't know. I've never I've never actually. I would lo- I would actually love to go to a desert. Uh, I like the idea uh-huh. of of deserts. It's I don't know why it's always been interesting to me. I'm sure I'll quickly get tired of that idea once I've yeah. been in the desert uh, on a horse with no name because it was good to get out of the rain. So, yeah, this this film uh, is directed by Eric Walter. He also wrote the film. So you have Danny Lutz. Uh, he's the main focus of, of the documentary. He, you know, remind me a lot of Michael Chiklis you know, the same, you know, kind of appearance and overall, you know, gruff uh, vibe. Boston. Um, very, bo- <laughs> very Boston, this guy. Yeah. You have a psych, uh, you have a couple different therapists, I think. You got, uh, there's one gal that they actually film a bit of his session with her. And then there's this other gal who's interviewed and she's taking the skeptic approach that, oh, he's just made this stuff up you know da 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 uh there's an investigative reporter who has a connection with him who is around with the lutzes uh during the initial uh uh claims of the haunting uh laura uh dido and uh there's a former reporter marvin scott that was a fun little bit where he's reading off the the message that he read on camera to introduce uh, this segment on Channel 5 News when they go to the Amityville house. Um, there's a few other people. There's uh, Lorraine Warren, you know. Good old Lorraine Warren. Uh, that, I don't understand why that was even in this movie. It seemed like padding for sure. But it was still interesting and entertaining in a train wreck kind of way. 
you know the whole thing with this is the wood from the cross i'm like yeah sure it is yeah like all the other relics that supposedly have wood from the i cross. didn't understand the purpose of any of that and she's like, you know, is anyone in here not Christian? Because if you're not Christian, I can't, not, I can't bring these yeah, out. It would be. Do you believe it's like, hey, hey, does does uh, do you, you know, does anyone in here not believe in God? It, and there's like, uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, I don't, I, I don't believe in God. And and and, 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 and Dan, Daniel's like, Daniel's it. like, who said that? What what what'd you say? Because <laughs> I'll find out real quick. It's like, all right, all right, settle down there, tough guy. That's another. Yeah, that's another thing. You just uh, like, I just like, literally want to just keep. I just literally want to call him tough guy the whole time. Oh yeah, tough yeah. guy. Uh, tell me more, tough guy. I think it's his defense mechanism. He's 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 emotionally fucking battered. I really do feel that this is an emotionally and psychologically battered man. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think this tough guy exterior is his defense mechanism. Like he, even in the, in the interview with uh, the, the therapist, he, he actually explains exactly what it is. I'm Danny's bodyguard. Yeah. You know, you're speaking to the bodyguard for that 10 year old kid. That's actually a, a really good way to put that. Cause I, sometimes I feel that way about my, like I'm, you know, my own bodyguard uh, in a lot of ways, you know, for the Josh flower, that is inside of me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you don't learn necessarily a whole lot of new things. Uh, he kind of, there are some bits, you know, when he's describing what happened and the way that it's set up and the way it's edited, it's actually pretty chilling. I got to be honest, uh, even if it's all bullshit, if, you know, if that is really the case, it's still pretty chilling to hear him recollect like what what happened um but then like there are wrenches that are thrown into into the mix like literally wrenches that are thrown yeah, into yeah. the mix where he starts talking about that george lutz he saw his stepfather levitating the wrenches with his mind in the garage and then you're like dude like really all of a sudden your dad's professor x yeah and then uh, okay i mean your stepdad sorry danny don't don't beat my ass. <laughs> it's not my fucking uh, father. It's my stepfather. <laughs> and he wasn't even a father. I can't yeah. do a good Boston accent. I'm doing my best. You did better than me. I'm not even going to attempt it. You basically it. just have to not pronounce your ahs. <laughs> which which honestly feels a little bit more natural to to just be a little bit lazier with your ahs and just not, you know, not not really enunciate them much. There's other little, uh, little, little tinges to to a good to a uh-huh. good Boston, because you don't say Boston, you say Bo- Boston. It's almost like a oh, I don't know. It's there's a my family's from uh, from up there, so uh, you know they they uh, my cousins, good lord, or, or even my aunt, Jesus Christ, they are so fucking. They uh-huh. got the accent so hard. Whenever you hear them talk, it's just like God damn, you're so fun. Fuck it up. You're so far up north, it's not even funny. Yeah, it's crazy about, you know, there, there are similarities between a New York accent and a Boston accent. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a lazier, I feel it's a lazier way of speaking, because uh, I, I feel like it takes considerable more effort to really go hard on your R's and really get that, you know, the hard R sound, uh, it, rather than just kind of relaxing your mouth and just doing ahs and cas and, you know, all that. 
I, I was the the old cliche saying I'm so fucking sick of hearing it. Park the car in Harvard Yard. It's uh <laughs> so annoying. It's uh, every time someone says that when they talk about up north, it's like you know whatever. But I will say I did get one weird ism. Uh, I say forward instead of uh, uh-huh. forward. I, I, ah. I like and Stephanie mocks me every time I say it. It's like no, it's forward. And she's like forward, and it's like I don't know where it can. I don't know why that's the one thing that I do that way. But whatever. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that was a little so, sidetrack. Um, the yeah, like I said, the documentary. You're not really gonna learn a whole lot of new stuff, but there are some things that you haven't heard before that you're like, yeah, I probably haven't heard that for a reason. <laughs> Moving wrenches with his mind. Come on. That being said, I do. I do think that there is a strong possibility that George Lutz was into some dark shit and uh, he might have opened himself up to something and that might have been what they were experiencing. Not on the extent or the level of what is reported in the novel or in the film or in the franchise. But I, I think, you know, there could have been something that happened there. Uh, whether it, it could have honestly just been straight up trauma that isn't even necessarily uh, supernatural in origin. It could just be an abusive household, and and that is what Daniel and his brother Christopher are are, are uh, recollecting. Is you know th- th- just really traumatic, abusive uh, situation scenarios with George that in order to cope with them, in order to deal with them better and explain them in a way that isn't just, oh, he was just a piece of shit and a horrible person. They they do it in a way where it was like, oh, no, it was... Well, you know, they else. have this, uh, like, like uh, psychologist on there, and she's yeah. talking about how people's memories of past events people have a human beings have a tendency to fill in the gaps they Mm -hmm. have a tendency to uh perhaps over embellish people can exaggerate what they've experienced Uh, they can exaggerate a little or exaggerate a lot they can add details to an experience to make the story more interesting Uh, and that there are lots of reasons why people might do that i mean for one thing we remember bits and pieces of experience, but we'll fill in the gaps in our memory with other bits of information, things we learned from other places, inferences we drew, which we decide probably happened, and we use those to fill in the gaps in memory. There also may be a motivation to remember things in a way that is a little bit more dramatic and a little bit more interesting. Danny now believes that he saw his stepfather move objects without touching them and the question is where did that come from it might be a speculation that it it could have come from the stepfather saying you know i can do this and the little boy started to think i i saw him do it that was the quote that she said yeah that and and i thought that was really good because um i think i think a lot more people do that than uh what you may think yeah, Danny, you know, Danny and, and the Lutzes and, you know, everyone else that's experienced something, you know, like this, um, real or, or imagined, it, it, the trauma that comes from that is still very powerful and, and still very real. 
And a lot of that comes from filling in those gaps and, and, and trying to make sense out of things. And um, in some ways, just trying to make sense out of it makes things worse, <laughs> you know, because you create these deep psychological scars, you know, and these these coping mechanisms that you, that shackle you in other ways where, you know, if you just came to grips with, oh, you know, this this happened or, you know, so-and-so abused me, you know, those sort of things, then then you don't have, you know, the coping mechanism that, that you know, is damaging in, in, a, in a different way. Then you can really heal. Because I don't think with the coping mechanisms, you and if they're so deeply set in, I don't think you ever truly do heal from something. Yeah. Because you shield yourself from it. So that's when you have stuff like, oh, I was, uh, it was uh, an, an instance of satanic, you know, ritual abuse, you know, that kind of thing. Um, maybe, you know, have something like that going on with it was a supernatural thing. But uh, his brother, Christopher, he's not interviewed in this, but he has done other interviews and he has corroborated uh, Danny's uh, um, claims that George was into the occult. So... The problem with Danny's case, other than the whole uh, defensiveness and the defensive nature of, uh, of his interview and everything, is he does mention a lot of the stuff that happened in the film, a lot of the stuff that happened in the book, like the flies and, and the pig, you know, in the window. And admittedly, that does hurt the credibility because you're like, well, you know that just happened in a movie, you know, that kind of thing, you know, maybe you saw the film later on and you just, because that was you, you just, just you know, because of how your brain is, it, chemistry is, it, you just over time thought that that was real. And I mean, you know, you know? let's, let's be real. I mean, this whole, all the publicity and the constant, Yes. document i mean that you know that's kind of mm -hmm. buttering his bread to a yeah. certain degree you would think but he's not but but he now actually with him he wasn't making a lot of money he wasn't you know it wasn't like george who was like doing all these interviews and doing everything. right but he was trying to distance himself from things for many many years But like say he's doing like his band or something and he wants to you know get on a good show or a good a good gig yeah is he gonna do an amityville themed well band? no i mean like, it, you know, he's just got that notoriety where people are gonna just show up yeah. and the promoters know that you know they know that that if he has a band you, well, uh, yeah um, i mean he should have one with as good of a guitar player as he is yeah the stuff with the Warrens, she mentions uh, there's a recollection of what happened when she went in the house and the reporter, you know, the former reporter from Channel 5 News also talks about it, you know, where she goes into the sewing room and she's like, oh, it's like something from the pits of hell. You're like, OK, all right. <laughs> the Warrens tend to do that a lot. A lot of embellishing. I, I, I really like the film The Conjuring, but I, I look at it as a work of fiction. I don't really look at the, you know, the exploits of the Warrens as anything that is deeply rooted in reality. Um, but the idea that George Lutz was involved in something 
that he didn't understand and opened him up opened himself up to something dark that caused them to have that night of terror that's something i can kind of find credible so it's one of those things where i don't 100% believe that this happened the way that the book or or other publications have said that it occurred but I don't 100% believe that it was all fabricated either because the sources that I, you know, William Weber, not trustworthy. He's a former attorney. You know, he, he, he was in, in for the money from the very beginning. George Lutz isn't very trustworthy either. I don't recollect exactly what Kathy has been saying. And, and with some of these kids, like what do they have to gain at this point? Especially if it's something that causes them so much trauma and so much, you know, strife and some of them have just straight up been like they've just hidden themselves away from society because they don't want to be connected with this which is what happens a lot of times with people who've had experiences like this whether it's with ghosts or ufos or whatever it is like a lot of them they don't necessarily want the publicity but in order to get something off their chest in order to kind of set the story straight you know, they, they come on a show or whatever, or they do an interview. Yeah, I mean, the surviving members of the People's Temple with Jim Jones, they, they've all but gone into hiding. Like, no one wants to talk about that shit. Even the people from who went to G- Guyana or whatever, uh, who survived, mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't, you know, I mean, that not, no one's talking, you know, no one wants to talk about it, which is a shame. I'd, I'd love to hear um yeah because it's it's so fucking um, interesting you know i mean all, that's that's like money mm-hmm. that's money in the bank dude all you gotta do is write a fucking book and people are gonna buy that they're gonna want to know you know like i any uh because i'm like super interested in cults anytime someone leaves a cult and they write a book i'm all over that like fucking white on rice i love those kind yeah. of books so uh this is from a article from the skeptical inquirer for by joe nickel called amityville the horror of it all so it gives a little bit of more information about what they supposedly said happened that night. They claimed, uh, the Lutzes claimed they were driven out by sinister forces that ripped open a heavy door, leaving it hang- hanging from one hinge, threw open windows, bending their locks, caused green slime to ooze from a ceiling, peered into the house at night with red eyes, and left cloven hoofed, supposedly paranormal, pheno- you know, cloven hoofed uh, tracks in the snow outside infested a room in the midwinter with hundreds of houseflies and produced myriad of other supposedly paranormal phenomena. So here's the thing. I'm going to mention something real quick about houseflies, about flies, and my own experience with uh, hundreds of fucking flies. I don't know if I... Have you heard that? Have I talked about this one? Uh, On the podcast I before? I think so. So, I was on a road trip with my parents to Nebraska. And uh, we were visiting the farm of uh, one of my stepdad's relatives. I think it was his sister. And we were, you know, just hanging out, parked the car, left the window down, you know, because like, ah, whatever, you know, nothing's going to happen. And she was even like, hey, don't leave the window down. You know, we got flies. You know, and we're like, ah, whatever. You know, it's like, you know, oh, this house, this is a murder house. So this house could be haunted just to let you know before you buy it. Like, ah, whatever. So we leave the window down 
And on our drive home from Nebraska, it just flies. Just hundreds of fucking flies. Like, all day, just coming out of, of different nooks and crannies of the car. I got, like, a drink uh, of soda, you know, from, like, McDonald's or something. And I remember vividly that a fly somehow just went down the straw into oh my, my drink. Yeah, it's not even that, like, big of a hole. And the flies just boom right into my drink. I'm like, I'm not drinking that. <laughs> just tons of flies. Like, for days, we're shooing flies out. Like, even when we, you know, got home, you know, there were still some flies. It, it was... It was something straight out of the Amityville Horror. That's why I'm bringing it up because, like, it was like, oh my god, like this is an old Amityville Horror situation. The only thing that was missing was like a demonic voice in the car saying, "Get out." <laughs> so, um, they had these flies. Um, there was this, uh, you know, other paranormal phenomena: the priest with blisters on his hands. Uh, apparently, there were five people who investigated the alleged haunting by bringing in alleged psychics together with uh, Ed Warren and his wife, Lorraine. Uh, the group held a series of seances in the house. One psychic claimed to be ill and to feel personally threatened by shadowy forces. Lorraine Warren pronounced that there was a negative entity right from the bowels of the earth. A further seance was unproductive, but psychics agreed a demonic spirit possessed the house and recommended exorcism. Uh, you also had the reporters who came to the house. On that note, the reporter did mention something that was interesting. Their cameraman, who had been who had shot like a ton of like really harrowing, disturbing shit throughout his lifetime, he went up the stairs in the Amityville house and he started to feel uncomfortable and like had heart palpitations and stuff. So that could just be stress. Might not be anything, but uh, I thought that was kind of let's not even let's not forget there is a lot to the whole um self fulfilling prophecy. You like you're going into a house that you that is already preloaded with all this mythology and as soon uh, I I think it's very similar to the uh, say the Nantius Cup or the Holy Grail, if you will, uh, Uh when um. You know, the priest, when he's talking about Unsolved Mysteries, like when he's like, when I saw the Nantius cup, I have to admit I was rather unimpressed. But when I held it, it was a completely different experience, as though I was already in paradise. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you gotta, you gotta think a lot of that is loaded into your psyche beforehand. Like, I I know before I would even walk into that house, I would be on edge. Yeah, yeah. Because of the whole, like, yeah, it prophecy. might be bullshit. It might not be real at all, but what if it is? Right. You know, it's that fear of the unknown. And a lot of the fears, a lot of the things that this this cameraman had dealt with firsthand were known fears. There were things that could be explained. So, uh, in September 1977, the book uh, came in. It was a runaway bestseller. Uh, Anson asserted there is simply too much independent cooperation of their narrative to support the speculation that they either imagined or fabricated these events, although he conceded that the strange occurrences had ceased after the Lutzes moved out. Not according to Danny, he says, like, the entity followed him in the documentary, yeah. Miami Devil Horror. He says it followed him around. Until he 
stayed in the desert in Arizona, apparently. Indeed, a man who had lived there for eight months said that he experienced nothing more than a horrible, horrible than a stream of gawkers that tramped onto their property. Uh, then you had the Lutzes, uh, the the people who came in after the Lutzes had left the house, the, the Cromarties. Um, they confirmed the suspicions of various investigators that it was a bogus admixture of phenomena, part traditional haunting, part poltergeist disturbance, part demonic possession, including elements that seemed to have been lifted from the movie The Exorcist. Researchers Rick Moran and Peter Jordan discovered that the police had not been called to the house and there had been no snowfall when the Lutzes claimed to have discovered cloven hoof prints in the snow. Other claims were similarly disproved that were, you know, mentioned in the novel. Is the cloven hoof print supposed to suggest that like a minotaur was in their yard or something? <laughs> I think it's supposed to be something like the devil. Uh, you, know, like, you remember, you know, like the Jersey devil, you know, that whole sort of thing. Uh, in, uh, there was also the extensive damage that occurred to uh, the 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 house that was also considered to be, uh, yeah. Uh, apparently, this interviewer guy, this guy Joe Nickel, I talked with Barbara Camardi on three occasions, including when I visited the Amityville as a consultant in the In Search of television series. Uh, she told me that her family had experienced no supernatural experiences or occurrences in the house. But that she had evidence, and she had evidence that the whole affair was a hoax. Subsequently, I recommended it was recommended to a producer of a then uh, forthcoming TV series called That's Incredible, who had called me for my advice about filming inside the house. That they have Mrs. Cromarty point out various discrepancies for close-up viewing, for example, recalling the extensive damage to doors and windows detailed by the Lutzes. She noticed that the old hardware hinges, locks, doorknob, etc., were still in place. That doesn't really. Uh, Helped their claims of, you know, extensive damage to the doors, that's for sure. Uh, upon close inspection, one could see that there were no disturbances in the paint and varnish. Now, if you're to believe that it was just a hallucination, then you're not going to see the damage. There was no real damage done. Uh, in the time that Ronald DeFeo's attorney, William Weber, told how the Lutzes had come to him after leaving the house, he told them their experiences could be useful to him in preparing a book. He's quoted here, we created this horror story over many bottles of wine that George Lutz was drinking. Uh, Weber told the Associated Press, we were creating something the public wanted to hear about. Weber later filed, uh, filed a $2 million uh, lawsuit against the couple, charging them with reneging on their book deal. The Cromarties also sued the Lutzes. Da, 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 da. Uh, there's a book uh, called The Night DeFeos Died by Rick Asuna. Apparently adds to the evidence. Ronald DeFeo's wife, Geraldine, allegedly confirms much of Weber, Weber's account. To her, it was clear the hoax had been planned for some time. Weber intended to use the haunting claims to help obtain a new trial for his clients, uh, and also a book deal. As, to George, as George Lutz, uh, now divorced from his wife, Osuna uh, states that George informed me that setting the record straight was not as important as making money off of fictional sequels. Osona details numerous contradictions in the story that Lutz continues to offer versions of. Uh, for his part, Osuna has his own story to tell. He buys Ronald Butch's DeFeo's current story about the murders, assuring his readers that it is true and has never been made public. Oh, great. So he believes that DeFeo and his the his theory that his sister, you know, Dawn, urged him to kill the entire family and that she and two of Butch's friends had participated in the in the crimes in fact, Butch maintains that Don began the carnage by shooting their domineering father with a 35 caliber Marlin rifle. Butch then shot his mother, whom he felt would have turned him in for the crime, but he claims he never intended to kill his siblings. 
so then you're still a murderer. You still killed your mom, even by your new defense. I find his mental gymnastics kind of fascinating. Like, he's not even going to try to be like, I didn't kill anybody. You know, like a lot of killers do. Right. This time around, he's like, you know, I, I just I just killed my mom. Uh, he left the house to search for one of his friends and left the scene. What? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what the fuck was that? Is it, that a- I got a, I think it's a sitar thing on my phone. It's uh, Is that gar- an own ghostly thing? <laughs> it's Garage Band. It's really fun. You're just messing with, with Garage Band. <laughs> Is this going to be the new uh, bullshit? You know, skeptic whistle. Oh yeah, the sitar. I forgot. That's a, a thing that we uh, that we that we do when we don't believe something. Maybe this could be you know a new thing. Oh, you hear <laughs> hear me rummaging? <laughs> this story. <laughs> um. So yeah, uh, they talked a little bit about the the DeFeo case some more, but yeah, I don't buy the DeFeo's claims that his sister did it, you know, plus a bunch of other people. Um, but yeah, this is a case that, at the end of the day, it's one hell of a good story. You know, a lot of people have you know been talking about it for many many years for a reason. Um, if something supernatural did occur. I find it interesting that so many of these supernatural events are just tied into the book. Like even even what uh Danny's recollecting, most of it is just, you know, from the book, except for like when he was possessed for like 25 minutes and he was thrown across the room. Um and uh it's just one of those things where part of me, you know, as someone who wants so badly to believe in the paranormal, you know, and the supernatural and everything. Part of me wants to be like, oh, it happened. But then the other part of me is like, there's so many things. There's Weber and his whole deal. You know, there's the Lutzes and, you know, George Lutz and his story keeps changing. You know, there's a book that was a bestseller. There's, you know, the, the legacy of the films and everything. But then you have the two kids and, you know, the daughter, she she's declined to interview about anything. But the two kids, like, you do feel for them. As much as Danny, as much of a dick he is at points in this documentary, in, in uh, Miamiville Horror, you still do kind of feel for him to have to just constantly deal with this cloud that's always over him. You know, the Amityville horror, you know, the the movie, the book, you know, the controversy, so on and so forth. Um, and I think at least there was something traumatic that occurred. Now, how much of it was real? I don't know. Uh, it could just be a lot of stuff that, that Danny and other people made up. Uh but I do feel that there's some real trauma going on and you can definitely see it when he's talking about it. I don't think he's acting in those moments. I think it's, he's actually dealing with some legitimate sort of PTSD. Um, 
But it's just one of those cases where when you really dig deep, when you really look into things, and you just see all these, you know, bits and pieces of evidence, you really do feel like leaning more towards like, oh, it, it just didn't happen at all. But I try to be like, be open minded. So I try to take like the middle ground proportion and be like, yeah, it's probably a combination of things, but it's probably not 100% either way. I, I'm leaning towards maybe like what 60, 70%, 80% hoax, and maybe you know 20% that it actually happened. But like it wasn't nearly as interesting, which is how a lot of things are, you know, with a lot of drama, with a lot of you know uh, haunting stories, with a lot of stuff. You know, people like to embellish things because it makes for a good story. It makes for a much more satisfying and entertaining tale. So, and I mean, you know, much much like people who. Um stay in cults even though yeah uh the, you know the, there's no way that like for instance david miscavige with science scientology like there's so many people who are saying like you know there's no way that david miscavige really believes this shit but at this point he's built his whole life and he's done so much fucked up shit he's built his whole life on this on this thing that there's just no way that he can at this point in his life, step away from it. He's just got to ride it. Same with Westboro Baptist Church. Like yeah. some of the elder members that are still there, they've built their whole lives picketing soldiers' funerals and saying mm-hmm. God hates fags and all this other incendiary shit. It, it literally, they just have to ride it out because they're so, you know, when you get to a certain age and it's just like, you know, if I, if I, if I go back on this now, my whole life has been a waste essentially. Um, so I think with with this kind of stuff, it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, you, you've gone with it for, for this, this long, you just kind of, you just kind of have to ride it out, you know, whether you actually believe it or not. It seems like the real haunting is, uh, something more psychological, you know, when it comes to, to people who've experienced these kind of events. In terms of you know that just constantly following them, this this uh, trauma. Um, one thing uh, I just want to kind of pose a question for is tying into the whole idea of, of things you know hauntings aren't usually like they are in the movies or in the Amityville horror; uh, they're much more boring. Um, because a lot of the hauntings you see, a lot of ghosts people talk about is like, oh, they saw an apparition uh, at, at like a battlefield, you know, somewhere somewhere in the south, you know, or, or you know, stuff like very like intense, uh, traumatic events in history or something as if it's like a snapshot of, of a time um, that, you know, is long past. But. With this kind of stuff, like, you don't normally, like, a demon pig and all that, like, normally that's not what what people, if you look at a lot of people's uh, recollections of hauntings or any sort of paranormal disturbances, most of the time they don't go straight into Hollywood land, and I think with Amityville Horror, that's that's one of the things that really does hurt its credibility the most, is the the Hollywood land kind of... uh, there was a, a devil pig and then there were cloven hoof prints in the snow and you know 
the house said get out you know that kind of stuff um i still think it's an interesting uh, story an interesting case um and at the end of the day believe what you want to believe and uh you can't really say for sure what happened or what didn't because none of us were there but um there's just so many different people involved with this that were just really looking for a paycheck on both sides. The th even the guy who's like, it was all made up. Like he was in looking for a paycheck too. And you could argue that George, if he was involved with this, the cult and maybe he did open himself up and this house up to something and his family that he consistently, distance is himself and his particular um his guilt so to speak like if you did this to your family you know because you're into like this dark shit like you would want to be like oh I, it wasn't anything i did it, it was the house there was a burial ground and you know the spirits were already was, there was, the, or, or was like the word that you were searching for was it culpability that's a good word yes thank you <laughs> About ready for some Josh Flower Diaries and we can wrap this bitch up. Yeah, I just want to get your final thoughts on it. Uh, what do you think I, happened? I, man, I don't know. I don't know. think he really expunged upon a lot of that. I don't really care, to be honest. <laughs> I, I did... <laughs> Great. I did this episode... I did this uh, this this uh, segment for your benefit. I, I really had no interest in, uh, in, in the Amityville horror thing. Um... I, um, you know, I didn't think the documentary was that good either. Um, nothing. I mean, I didn't really believe it from the get go that anything. Honestly, I, I'm and and I might have changed since I first started this podcast, but uh, I feel like I'm at the point in my life to where until I see some kind of paranormal shit, I I, I don't really know if it exists. And it's kind of this thing with me to where it's like, at the same time, like, I don't want to see paranormal shit. Because yeah. that sh shit would yeah. freak me out. So I'm kind of like, you know. So what's your explanation about that photo? With the boy? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, dude, it's clearly a, a human, a fully fleshed human being. And they said no one was they said no one was in the house, but maybe there was. I, there's no way. I mean, you know, it's it's they're saying that no one was in the house, but that's clearly a picture of a kid. And and, and it doesn't look like a demon kid. His eyes, the um, the, the eyes are flashing in the picture because that's what happens with the old photographs when you take someone's picture yeah. and it hits them right in the the eye you it the back of your eye reflects light from the flash I mean, it could and, be just one of the kids who was just hanging out during the shoot and just poked his head you know out from behind a banister yeah i don't think uh there's anything yeah I, I i don't think it's it's a creepy photo I will give it that. I mean, it's creepy when you frame it in the context of yeah. no one was supposed to be here and this is a haunted house. But if you just showed someone the picture, they'd be like, okay, it's just a picture with a kid in it. All right. I don't know. I, I still think it's pretty creepy even without that context. It could also be creepy if, if it was, if that picture was uh like Neverland Ranch. 
Oh my god! Are you really gonna go there? I know. I just went there. I didn't have to go there, and I just did. And I, I don't even think I don't even know if Mike's guilty or not. And I still said that. What a piece of shit! All right, um, let's move on to perks. Me and Josh Flan wrap this shit up. So Josh is and uh, is now an eternal skeptic. Not with UFOs. I mean, we actually have proof now. The government's actually yeah. released video. I mean, that's, I mean, we're... Well, I mean, to be fair, I am skeptical more now, too. I think when, when because of doing this podcast, because of doing all this extra research, because of doing all these things, you know, delving deeper into things, you, yeah. it does tend to make you more skeptical. I mean, when you see things like the Ghost Boy segment on Unsolved Mysteries, and everyone's talking you know, about what happened, and it seems so sincere. And then you dig deeper, and then you're like, she wrote a book, and there's ghost cars and shit. Then you're right. like, oh, okay. Uh-huh. You know. Yeah, that was like that was that was before like we uncovered all that. That was uh-huh. easily one of the scariest ghost segments on Unsolved Mysteries for me. Um, besides the Black Hope curse. Which I said, you know, with with all that being said about me being skeptical, I still don't I still can't explain the Black Hope curse because those I don't think those old people had any reason to lie. They just oozed authenticity. Yeah. And that one is a little bit more believe it's it's not a little bit. That's a lot more believable than this case. Yeah. The stuff they're the stuff they're describing is more like an energy that was left behind because yeah. of all the emotion, because it, they built it on like a slave yeah. uh, cemetery. And I think you could have, dark, you could have had dark energy because of the murders in the house. That could have been. Why does the energy got to be dark? Just because they're black? No, no. I'm talking about this house. You're Amityville. a racist. I'm talking about the Amityville house. Oh, I'm not okay. talking about that case. Oh, I thought you were talking about the black hope. No. <laughs> What a weird okay. name to name that cemetery, the Black Hope Cemetery. Yeah. Like, like, well, the name of the house in Amityville was High Hopes. Yeah, but like Black Hope when slaves were like, yeah, there, yeah, it's like pretty, w- it's what kind of hope up. did they actually have, though? Yeah. I mean, they died as slaves, you know, like that's a, uh, it, it, it should it should have been called the fuck whitey. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> like, my God. Uh, Josh goes there every Tuesday night. Make sure you tune in to Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries with Wacko and the Bean. Shit gets crazy every Tuesday night. You do not want to miss it. Oh, man. All right, now we're on to the perks of being a Josh Flower. I I uncovered my teenage diaries uh, a few months ago, and I've been reading excerpts from them uh, on here. Um, I believe I'm 16. Teenage horror. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I believe I was 16 years old at, at this current date. Um, our, we are we left off on Sunday, April 10th, 2005. Well, another boring, wasted day for a semi-boring, wasted weekend. Yesterday, I got to go to the mall and go to Golden Corral, though. That was all right. Nothing satisfies me anymore. Smoking doesn't. Going places doesn't. Playing my music doesn't. Nothing seems to please me. I think I'm depressed, or basically I'm sick and tired of doing the same shit. This life is getting old. So old. I want something new and fresh. I'm so tired of doing the same shit. 
My life could go on an autopilot without me because I have such a hardcore routine I follow. My body already knows what to do without me having to even think anymore. Let me explain. I wake up, get dressed, eat, watch, watch Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, go to school, make stupid jokes, work out every now and then, go to history, uh, take notes, go to English class, talk to Brian, go to math and be depressed and get weird thoughts, see Casey for a split second, go to lunch, make stupid jokes with friends, go to Bible class, talk to Josh, go to Spanish, make jokes, or make jokes, class laughs, Go to biology, make jokes, and talk to Josh. Get out of school, stand outside until 3.30, drive home, take my school clothes off, eat a snack, watch TV, get on the computer, play guitar, get back on the computer, eat supper, (laughs) play guitar, watch Dr. Phil, watch two more hours of TV, go to bed. That's every motherfucking day! I'm so sick and fucking tired of doing the same exact bullshit every fucking day. Then do something different. What the fuck? The human body isn't built to do the same fucking shit every fucking day. What the fuck is my parents and my school's fucking problem? Why the fuck do I do the same shit every fucking day? I'm so fucking (laughs) tired of it. Do you fucking hear me? I'm fucking tired of it. Why the fuck don't I have a life? Fuck you fuckers. (laughs) <laughs> oh shit that's how i felt on sunday april 10th 2005 hey young josh uh then do something about it <laughs> do something different you see mike Switch what, things you, up. what you don't understand about the old josh is that my problems ha- were everyone else's fault things just happened to me in life it was nothing that i caused everything just happened to poor old josh And, you know, cool and interesting shit was just supposed to fall in my lap. Why? Uh, I don't know. I wasn't particularly, uh, I wasn't an attractive woman that could hook some sugar daddy that would fly me all around the world. I didn't have any particularly redeemable skill that would have gotten me anything. So, in short, I was an entitled little prick. Who uh, was uh, complacent and um, Jesus Christ, like, you know, like I said, I haven't gone back and read any of these. So when I read them right now on the pot, it's like new to me, too. Like, I can't believe I do remember when I was younger, I would get in these little fits of every day feels exactly the same. Like, fuck Mm. me. And I think my big problem. I love how detailed you were, though. I know. Yeah. Well, I guess. And and, and that kind of like jogs some memories reading that because uh yeah I, I do remember watching fresh prince of bel-air before <laughs> going to school and then going home and i think i did watch a lot more tv back then um so, so it was a lot like uh an early facebook or, or twitter feed you know when somebody first gets twitter or facebook and they don't, don't necessarily know what you're supposed to do on it so they're just like i ate a sandwich i did this I watched Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and then I went to school. You I, think, know? I think if I had had a goal in my life at that point that I could work towards and be proud of, like that would have like made my life more meaningful. But I think my pro- what I was really saying in that post is like, I don't have anything. My life has no purpose. Not, not in the sense that I was suicidal, but like I wasn't working towards anything. I was just existing. And for me, that's that's never been acceptable to just exist. I want to have like a fucking purpose like what am i doing what's Mm -hmm. my 
ultimate goal, you know, so I think that was really before really before I like just dove headfirst into music and, and YouTube and, you know, I'm, t- I'm telling you, man, like this podcast, YouTube and my band are like the three things that I live for. And, you know, it get, having a purpose in life is very important to combat depression. All right. So this is from Friday, April 15th, 2005. OK, I don't know what my problem is, but for some reason lately, I am really hating emo kids. My best friend Josh Dela Cruz is emo, and he is pissing me off so bad. He was telling me about how he wears girl pants and shit just because all his, quote, hardcore friends wear them, and he parts his hair to the side, and he listens to the music 24-7, and now he's reading this book, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Oh, shit! The namesake! The namesake of this very segment is... I told you, I told oh, you that... that's great. I told you that's where this shit came from, because oh, the book man. was so popular back then. Anyway, did you I, know that it was in your Zanga? No, I didn't. I had Diaries? no, I, I had no idea I was going to bring that book up. Wow, oh, wow. that's funny. Um, anyway, I digress. Now he's reading this book, "The Perks of Being a Wallflower," which is like pure fucking emo jizz all cummed into one book. <laughs> Why the fuck do you have to do what everyone fucking else does? Why is fitting in so fucking important? Are you that self-absorbed that you have to copy someone's exact asshole to be popular? If you're a dickhead, parting your hair and crying to boy bands ain't gonna make you any less of a dickhead. Shit, I like rap more than emo because at least with rap there is a fucking point. With emo, you're just sad because your fucking whore girlfriend sucks some other guy's penis instead of yours. God damn. Damn. So crude. I'm about to lose all my friends. But shit, I could care less. Damn it, I love cuss. Oh, wait, what? I'm about to lose all my friends, but I shit fuck could care less. Damn it, I love cussing. For anybody who fucking likes emo, fuck you, grow the fuck up! All capitals with a bunch of exclamation points. I would flick you off, but you can't see my damn finger. Fuck you! Get some legitimate shit to listen to, like Rush. Josh was telling me how he... (laughs) Josh was telling me how he was telling me how he wanted to buy a Tool CD, one of the bands that I liked, and I wanted to say, "No, Josh, anyone who wears girl pants and is and is okay with that isn't allowed to listen to Tool." <laughs> but instead, I said, "Well, no, Josh, they aren't godly. Damn it, why do I go out of my way to make people happy or not piss them off? You know, I shouldn't, and God knows I don't have to, but I've lost a lot of my friends, and I'm glad because I'm figuring out I don't need slash want any friends. They really have little purpose for me. I just want my lover and a handful of people I can talk to about my many problems, and I'm fine. Oh, so friends. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was a good one, Mike. Yeah, exactly. Stupid ass. (laughs) Fucking. I don't need to really win anyone over to the Josh Cannon brand of friend. I'm tired of selling myself to people. If they think I'm weird for saying something stupid, fuck you. Oh, and another thing, why the fuck is everyone acting or trying to act all mature? This may not be an epidemic in junior high, but damn, it is in high school. Everyone tries to act so damn mature. And I'm like, who are you people kidding? Maturity is something you acquire with time. You can't just act that way. Why Why do people do what they do? What motivates them? Is it all bravado? Am I weird for not thinking like they do? Or are they weird for all thinking alike? I don't know the answer to that question. All I, all I know is I need them KC 
them lips Casey Jism by All right. Well, uh Wow, a that's of, a lot to unpack. A, a, ending um, on a politically incorrect note. I wanted yeah. so I wanted to, do, do do you just see the uh desperation to be yes. like I'm different than everyone else. I love I, I love the whole like oh, I don't need to sell like sell my Josh Cannon brand. I'm like, "Oh, imagine what the Josh Cannon brand slogan would be." I would be, I would you know. refund I would refund that brand of uh person what, if I bought what, that. What what would the advertising for that brand be like? Josh? Fuck! Fuck! <laughs> That'd probably be some something. Just be like, "Fuck you! I don't need you. I don't need your support." But buy my products anyway. But fuck you. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and yes, I, you know, trends still annoy me to this day. Don't get me wrong. When everybody's jumping on a bandwagon and doing the same thing, I do find it irritating because it, uh, on some level, it does show their lack of intelligence to a certain degree, like, or or not so much lack of intelligence, but lack of, um, you know, like they they don't want to like put the work into developing their own tastes and style. They would what just. What are your thoughts on memes then? Because that's basically following the trend times ten. Oh, meme, memes on memes honestly annoy me. Um, it, it, it's it. You know what annoys me even more are meme curators and people who start their own meme pages who literally just take other shit that other people has made and then they just repost it as though. Like, you know, it's it's like the 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 idea of like seeing a funny picture and saving it and acquiring like a bunch of funny pictures and then like reposting them, uh, because you yourself can't say anything funny. Yeah, it's it's annoying to me. Sometimes they're funny, but it's funny for the person who made it. You know, kudos to them, not for the person sharing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, like people who. But yeah, like back back then though, man. Like I just I was unable to. I was so insecure with my own self that I just had to shit on these people so hard. Yeah, and, I love how you were shitting on emos, but like acting like an emo at the same. Oh, time. I know, right? Isn't that so funny? <laughs> like I was being the biggest emo bitch, and then I, I talk about how everyone <laughs> in high school was acting mature. It's like, yeah, they were so much more grown up than you, Josh, and you couldn't handle it. You know, just because they weren't laughing at my like probably homophobic and racist jokes at the time i thought that they were just these immature assholes good lord dude uh by the way guys don't uh don't (laughs) don't forget that this was 15 years ago and i am no longer this guy so i'll read one last one then we'll call it a day this is gonna be a long ass podcast but whatever it's halloween suck a dick um this is (laughs) (laughs) old josh came in old josh had to make an appearance yep wednesday april 20th 2005 hello zanga I feel pretty okay, I guess. I just watched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is a good, intriguing movie. It's about a guy and a girl who meet, and they end up breaking up, and the girl gets her memory erased by this new process of thought elimination, and then the guy, Jim Carrey, does it too. And in the middle of the process, he finds that there were so many good memories of her that he wants to save, uh, because when he was with her, he felt alive. So he tries to hold on to those memories, but eventually he forgets her. It was good. Whenever I get done watching good movies, it leaves me with a feeling of whatever that movie was about. Now I feel, I don't know. I wanted to see Casey today, but right after fucking school, I mean, the second I step out of the building, my dad conveniently drives right up to my fucking balls, and I'm like, what the fuck is up with this fucking early-ass shit? 
What? I wrote, my dad drives right up to my fucking balls. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm just imagining my dad in his pickup truck just <laughs> just hopping the curb and driving in the and, and just par- like parking the bumper right onto my ball sack. Weak. Like, ah, uh, dad. All, right, all right, son, get in. Um, <laughs> fuck. Uh, lost my spot here. Um, right into my balls. Fuck, and I'm like, what the fuck is up with this fucking early ass shit? You know, I only get to see her like twice in my fucking day, and each time is for like ten minutes. What the fuck gives, man? I swear, I cannot fucking wait till I can drive. I want to go to school early and leave school kind of uh fucking late if I want. Or I could do it vice versa. That's just it. I'll have the power to do whatever the fuck I want, and my lover and I will have se- uh, a sex life again. We never had a sex life. What am I talking about, sex life again? I'm fucking failing geometry. I missed every damn problem on my quiz today, and there was only 11 questions, so you know that's an F. And then Giovanna, that's our math teacher's first name, she doesn't deserve to be called Mrs., started harassing some students as usual, and it was so outrageous that they started laughing at her. And she was like, what is so funny? Why do you always laugh at me? And this lady is the world's biggest bitch. I fucking hate that bitch. She is the same lady that wouldn't pray for my dad when I asked her to. So no one would say anything. And I'm, and I'm very afraid oh. of this lady. So I very cowardly raised my hand. It was almost automatic. And I go, Miss Warden? My voice kind of quivering. I th- th- think the reason they laugh at you is because you get so mad over the smallest things. And the class started chuckling sort of quietly and then louder when they actually realized I just what I just said to that ogre. And then she goes in her normal alienating tone. Josh, I think that is along the lines of disrespect. And I said, see, Miss Warden, you you, you just got mad at me saying that. And now you're saying I'm disrespecting you. And she's like, I do not get mad over little things. It's just annoying when people laugh at you and you don't know why. And I'm like, (laughs) and I'm like, I just told you why. You're a fucking whore slut bitch who I wouldn't piss on to put out a fire. Anyways, that was a big fucking ordeal. Now I'm kind of scared of what she... There's no way you said that. (laughs) No, I didn't say that. Now I'm kind of scared of what she's going to do in geometry tomorrow. And oh my God, I fucking hate pop-up ads. Damn it, I'm trying to fucking type (laughs) and these damn pop-ups keep fucking popping up. The fuck up. I don't want your fucking products, you big fucking douches. Bye, uh, uh, politically incorrect thing. I need them lips. Love you forever, baby. Josh Pooty Poot Cannon. Ooh. Ooh, that was cringy. Ooh. God. (laughs) That hurt. Dude, I, holy shit, I forgot all about that shit in Miss Warren's class. The pop-up ads. I love that, because that's basically what your posts are like. <laughs> annoying, uh, short little annoying uh, yeah. stories. Dude, um... You'll be saying something, or you, sometimes you'll say something profound, and then it'll be like, you know, fucking this, fuck that. When when I when I said the line when Miss Warden said Josh I think that's along the lines of disrespect disrespect at my school was ten demerits or fifteen Ooh. if you got sixty demerits you were um you were kicked out of of school if you got fifty you were suspended for I think if you got forty demerits you were suspended for a day fifty you were suspended for two days and when you were suspended it, it didn't matter if there was a test or whatever you got a zero on it automatically 
because you were suspended. It's not like a sick day where you can make up the test. No, you got a zero on it. So you could really fuck your shit up if you... Uh, but 60 was expulsion from the school. Well, uh, and disrespect. she could have then easily, you know, I she could have pulled her weight around if she wanted to and been like, okay, you get a demerit, you get a demerit, you get a demerit. Like, everybody gets a demerit. Well, she couldn't just you know. give people demerits for laughing at her. But when I... Yeah. Why not? Because that's my. I mean, you know, if you think about well, it, what's like, she gonna do? Point to every single happening. point to every single person chuckling and going, "All, all of you go to the principal's office," and then they're gonna be like, no. "Oh, we just yeah, laughed yeah. at something she said." And that they, yeah. she would, she would catch shit for that. Yeah, um, exactly. But me, me, always wanting to be the rebel, always wanting to be the one, the attention whore that I'm seeing more and more. The more I read these, I'm seeing just how much <laughs> of an attention whore I was. Me being the only one raising my hand. And, and telling her, you know, what's what. And and probably embellishing, like, what the reaction was, too. Oh, yeah, probably her. so. Um, I, I'm, I'm half surprised you weren't, like, typing up, like, and they cheered. You yeah. Know, <laughs> <laughs> and then Highway to the Danger Zone started playing by Kenny Loggins. <laughs> yeah, I... And then I put my aviators on, and I... God, it was so abundantly clear that I just wanted to be a performer or some kind of attention whore because I, everything I did back in school was just all for attention. And then when I was denied the attention, I was like serious, a, seriously a little mini Elliot Roger back back then. Like, well, not even mini because I was fat, but so I was a big a, a fat Elliot Rogers, uh, the 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 mother of all or the father of all incels. Like I was like that's why when we covered him, I could just relate to him so much because mm-hmm. like I understood how it felt. But I had friends and shit, and he he really didn't. Um, and but we both neither one of us were getting pussy, which was you know very frustrating to me. Although you you said you don't need friends. I know, yeah, no, Josh doesn't need friends, but I I totally need friends. Um, I I needed everyone to like me. Um despite what I said. All right, well, that that was horrific, but, you know, you people probably got your entertainment value from that. Pootie poots. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what that was about. Uh, pretty cringy, um, but that was my whole life as a teen. I had to live in that body. Do you understand? I had to live in that brain. Like, I'm so fucking glad. I'm so glad that, like, with my YouTube channel, for instance, like, I can look at videos I made, like, four or five years ago and be like, okay, I approve of that, you know, uh, of how I acted or my behavior. I'm like, I'm glad I can look at, at things now. And I'm like more consistent. I am more consistently like myself than I used to. Anyway. Wow. This podcast has gone way too long. Um, <laughs> probably gonna have to be broken up into fucking chunks. Probably my fault. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, guys, I'm going to keep this real short this week on the, uh, exiting here. Uh, if you want to, um, Subscribe to us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it is uh, uncovering unexplained mysteries. Twitter is uncovering unexplained mysteries. Go to our Facebook or go to Facebook and go to the group section and search uncovering unexplained mysteries. Join our fan page. That's where all the interaction goes down. Uh, We just had a new member today ask me about my possum. Um, so that's still a thing that's, uh, that's alive and well. I'm waiting for someone to ask about Mike's toe now. Um, we have merch available <laughs> in the link to this, the description of this podcast, buy a t-shirt, buy a mug. Uh, I just reduced the prices on the face masks. They're like eight bucks now. They used to be like 15 cause, uh, quite frankly, they're not selling. Um, 
And finally, if you want to subscribe to us on our YouTube channels, Mike's YouTube channel is uh, youtube.com slash OCP communications. Um, he is a movie guy. What was the last movie or video you did, Mike? Last uh, review I posted was for a film called When a Stranger Calls Back. I also reviewed the first film, When a Stranger Calls. And I've done uh, Evil Dead films. I've done a bunch of, I've actually done a lot of stuff this October. So um, if you are into horror films and stuff like that, uh, check them out. I got a bunch of uh, reviews up for various different uh, horror movies. Right on, right on. Uh, because it's the month of October and, you know, it's it's the month of horror for a lot of people. I'm worried that... Oh, I also uh, put up my uh, interview with, uh, the second part of my interview with screenwriter Larry Block. This time I talked to him about his collaborations with Stan Lee um, and uh, the various different Marvel films projects he was working on prior to, uh, you know, the MCU and anything involving with that. Well, there you go. Go check it out. Uh, I'm afraid I don't think I'm gonna have time to put out a Halloween video this this year. I, I put out a Halloween video every year. Uh, since I started my channel, and I'm I'm really unless you do just like a simple like list video or something. Yeah, just I just don't and... know when I'll have time to do it because uh, tomorrow I'm going to be pretty busy, um, and then Saturday I have to do a wed on Halloween. I'm doing a wedding dressed as my Dancing with Ghost character Callus. Uh, I am I'm a fish. I am uh, DJing the wedding at, in character, and then we're going to play a, con a like a show at that wedding for their reception. It's for a friend of mine that I went to high school with, actually. Uh, she's getting married. Uh, so, and that's Halloween. So, uh, uh, maybe I'll be able to squeeze something out tomorrow. I doubt it. I don't know. Um, but anyway, if you want to go to my channel, it is youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts. Um, I do videos about music. Uh, I critique music. I am in the process of going through Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time. And I'm critiquing their list or complimenting it. Uh, mostly critiquing because they it is clear that Rolling Stones hate rock music now and uh, all the stuff that I really like they put way down on the list and all this just the crappy woke bullshit just trying to be woke oh yeah they're so, they're fucking so tr they're trying so they're so pandering it's not even funny and the thing is like what is the point it's not like you're gonna get more readers or more you know people to like really be into your publication the more woke you are. I feel like if you're super liberal, like you get like a like newsletter that tells you like the this month's newest like position to take on something and like Rolling Stone just goes, oh, this month uh, we're, you know, going to up our liberalness up these many notches and start doing this, that and the other. And um, it's just it's so clearly pandering at this point. And it used to not be that way. But anyway, um, and my band Dancing with Ghosts has a new single out called Obsidian Blood. It's it's perfect for your Halloween playlist. So go to Spotify. So it's a music video. Uh, yeah, the music video is great for that as well. Um, for your video playlist, if you're having a party, uh, whatever. Um, so yeah. Anyway, until next time, uh, have a happy and safe Halloween. Bye. See ya.